0: What has happened to the changing American work ethic? That's why we need to talk about work and laziness. Uh, If you missed this last time, last time I I put this chart up, it was in your notes last week. Uh, It's not this week just for sake of space. But something has happened really in the last couple of hundred years of our nation's history. Uh, And that is a vast change in how people think about work, how they act at work, um, even how uh, they make decisions about uh, what they want to do with their life. And uh, Larry Burkett, in this very helpful book, uh, Business by the Book, uh, has this little chart, and I got it up here for you in case you missed last week, how the work ethic has changed. And what Solomon is going to call us to in the book of Proverbs this morning as we um, continue our study of the book of Proverbs is... Uh, building a biblical work ethic we could call it that building a way of thinking about work and approaching work and doing work that brings glory to god and, and that is that 's really going to be the, the theme of the morning. We saw it in psalm uh, try that again we saw that in psalm eighty six that God is gathering people from every tribe and tongue and nation who will come and worship him and glorify his name and uh, we 're going to see it here this morning that that the the chief Point and goal of a work that would bring honor to God is to do work for the glory of God. That's that's our motive there. And then we'll see in my sermon as we conclude the five solas this morning, the soli Deo Gloria. Gloria to God alone be the glory is is not just a motivation in work. It's not even just a motivation in salvation. It is the the fundamental motivation of God Himself and of His people in all things. And uh, so that kind of will tie everything together. But but just notice how this works. And I want to read to you um, from uh, Dr. William Penn, he's a professor of economics and business at uh, Bellhaven College in Jackson, Mississippi, and interacting with uh some of Dr. B- or Larry Buckett's um, material here, he talks about how, the, how this work ethic has changed over the years. And let me, just, let me just talk you through this chart here to kind of set the table for where we're going with Solomon in the book of Proverbs today. In the Puritan day, the, the Puritan era was probably the last time in history when a majority of society understood a biblical work ethic and practiced a biblical work ethic. We recognize that uh, the Bible has uh, been around for thousands of years And when we think about it in terms of our own history, that the last time, the most recent time in our history that we've seen a biblical work ethic is in the 16th and 17th century when we think about uh, the work of the Puritans. Um, Of course, the Puritans were really a a group uh, largely of pastors who broke away from the Church of England because of the Church of England's uh, move away from the gospel and from biblical truth. And of course, these are guys like John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, and he wrote that book where? In prison. And why was he in prison? What's that? Because they said that the church said, well, you can have your church back, you can have your pulpit back, just don't preach the biblical gospel. And Bunyan said, thank you, I'd rather minister from prison. And he did. And dozens of these pastors, um, these men who turned away from the Church of England, they were kicked out of their churches. They were not allowed to preach in their pulpits. So what did they do? They took to the streets. They took to the fields. And and that led to uh, what became known as open-air preaching. And anyway, so that's the era we're talking about. And, and these men, as they rediscovered the biblical gospel, also began to rediscover biblical truths in other realms of life. Their work ethic went something like this. Work is a part of the creation ordinance and is not a curse, but a virtue. You want to start a controversial conversation with somebody this week? Just try that one on for size. Is your work a curse or a virtue? Right. the Puritans would go on to say all work is significant and all forms of work are pleasing to God if done properly man has a responsibility to use his God-given gifts for God and should look for a calling from God but this is really interesting rather like, like today people say well what do I want to do that's fun What do I want to do that's going to make some good money? What do I want to do that's going to make my life easy? That is not the biblical view, and that's not what the Puritans would say. The Puritans would say that every single one of you are called by God to a specific vocation, and you need to figure out what that is. And then pursue it with all your heart as the personal call of God. How far we've come. The employer-employee relationship in the Puritan view, the biblical view, was one of cooperation because they both have a common goal, to glorify God. And likewise, wealth or profit is ethically neutral in the sense that it can be either a blessing, a testing, or even a curse, depending upon how you pursue it. Fulfillment in the job is found in faithfulness and obedience to God's word, not any other material or work-related success. So that's the Puritans rediscovering the work ethic. And again, I'm quoting here from uh, Professor Penn's uh, paper on this as he interacts with some of this. Now, let's, let's just talk about a couple of these, and then we'll move on. I'm going to walk you through all of these eventually. But, but now, what happens when we go from the early 1700s now to the mid-1700s, from the Puritan work ethic to what uh, Burkett calls the craftsman work ethic? The, the, the motto of the Puritans, and thus the, the biblical view, is do all for the glory of God, right? And then that slides into this, uh, this second work ethic that, that kind of changes and transforms. God helps those who help themselves, Do you know how many Americans think that's in the Bible? Some of you are thinking, that's not in the Bible? Yeah, we'll (laughs) talk later on. Um, Listen to what happens. And this is, again, uh, Professor Penn writing. Man's individual efforts are of supreme significance. God has given man a set of natural laws which man can use to properly govern himself. And the need for an active God has passed, and man is basically in control of his own destiny. So we're going to wave our hands at the sort of natural laws that God has put in place, but then God kind of walks off the stage and says, okay, you fend for yourself now. That's part of the the uh, theo- theological change that happens into this second phase. Work is more of an opportunity to exalt oneself than to glorify God. And this is where the secularization of work begins. Achievement is basically in relation to others and sometimes at the expense of others. This is competition, right? This is one to outdo your competitor. And fulfillment is found in, quote, doing the best job you can given the circumstances. So we see how God, though he is acknowledged in terms of God has set the whole thing up and there's natural laws and I may even see the gifts I have is coming from God. Now God begins to be marginalized from society, right? You know, people may still believe in him, but he's not actively a part of people's life, particularly as they think about a work ethic, and that leads, thirdly, to this entrepreneurial work ethic where material progress helps everyone to enjoy a higher standard of of living. There's the change in motive. It's gone from glorify God to, you know what, if I work really hard and thus earn a lot of money and gain a lot of stuff, that leads to a higher standard of living, and that becomes my goal the pursuit of wealth provides incentive for progress right you 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 want to you want to work hard on the job well you're going to get paid for your work and that profit centered motivation takes center stage material incentives are the utmost importance in generating productivity and innovation and, and you can see this looking back especially in the early part of the 20th century right you can see where the corporations began to really compete for the right employees by offering all sorts of incentives. I mean, Think about what's going on today in contrast to that. Benefits? Well, they're not so good anymore, are they? If they're offered at all. A retirement plan? Maybe. But don't expect it. Taking care of the employee? I mean, you remember the day where the employer cared about the employee's family and health? Okay, that's that's the day we're talking about here that has been largely lost today. Legal standards begin to replace the Bible as a source of ethical standards, right? There's an increasing alienation between employer and employee that begins here and fulfillment is found in wealth generation in order to enjoy a higher standard of living. Okay, we'll stop right there. But you can see how this is morphing, and and I think a a cultural study, sort of a a sociological observation, like what uh, Mr. Burkett is making here, I think it's very important because as we look at the biblical view, and we're raising children and grandchildren, and and we're working ourselves, um, you know, it's sort of it's sort of the um, well, if you forgive me for using this analogy, it's sort of the dilemma of Aristotle's fish. You just heard about Aristotle's fish? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. No, this is actually true. Uh, the philosopher Aristotle uh, asked the question, if you want to know what it's like to be wet, should you ask a fish? And you think on the one hand, it's a very logical thing to do, right? Because a fish is wet all the time. You know, surely, if you're going to want to know what wet is, talk to somebody who's wet all the time. And yet that's the challenge. A fish doesn't know what it's like to not be wet. And that's part of the problem. We get so engrossed into what is normal in our culture, we don't make obvious observations about what we do and why we do it because it's just normal society, right? Like the fish that's always in water, we're just always in this society and we don't know what it's like to be in a different society. We don't know what it's like to live in a culture of a different work ethic, of different work standards. And so I think when we study history, history creates a contrast that's helpful. And we can look at ourselves and say, wow, I never realized I was doing that. You see what I'm saying? So I think this is valuable, and uh, it'll help us uh, to kind of skip our way into Proverbs here today. Um, last time we looked at the sluggard. We did our sluggard study, the, the proverbial lazy man, and we learned largely what not to do. This, this is not the person you want to be. Uh, the motto of your home is, we want to all grow up to be sluggards, right? That's not what you want to do. And Solomon introduces us to this character called the sluggard who... Demonstrates for us all the wrong ways to think about life and particularly about work. And we talked about many of those features last time. I want to I want to conclude our sluggard study today, and then we'll replace that. We'll look at the contrast of a biblical work ethic. We'll start that, and we'll probably finish that next week. So, so with me, take your Bible with me and turn to Proverbs chapter ten. If you're already not not in Proverbs, go ahead and turn there, and um, let's talk some more about sluggards. Okay, We talked about what the sluggard is, what he does, what he needs to do last time. And you know this, he doesn't take the initiative. He doesn't finish what he starts. He doesn't maintain what he owns. He's not reliable. He's not trustworthy. um, He's lazy. He does the minimal amount of work to get by. And though people that love him try to help him and say, hey, maybe you ought to do things differently. Maybe you ought not to do these same things over and over. And, you know, maybe you should look at this uh, area of your life differently. He's so filled with pride, he thinks he's fine and everybody else is crazy. Okay? So so how do you, when you come across a sluggard, and you, you will, um, what do you do with him? Let me give you some pointers on how to deal with soldiers because Sol- Solomon says we don't want to be this person, but okay, let's say you're not this person. What happens when you run into one? How do you deal with somebody? And th- this is actually very, very helpful. Uh, one of the things that, that um, I see a lot of in counseling is people talking about problems in their relationships. It may be a problem with a family member. It may be a problem with an adult child. It may be a problem with somebody at work. It may be a problem with... Um, a neighbor that's causing problems in their neighborhood. And one of the questions is, how do you deal with people like that? And so I think this is uh, this is relevant for some of those situations. First of all, when you come across a sluggard, don't hire him. Don't hire him. Look at verse chapter 10, verse 26. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. Now that's a challenge. Because we have a society of sluggards today. Right, But the Proverbs, the Proverbs would say, don't hire him. Or at least don't hire him with productivity and efficiency on your mind. Maybe you hire him as a discipleship project, and that's awesome. Do that. Hire him as an evangelism opportunity. Yes, do that. And I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm totally not joking. We should do that if we're in positions uh, where we can do that. But in terms of, you know, I'm looking for a good worker, I'm looking for somebody who's going to be a lifelong employee, I'm you know, that that sort of thing, this is not the person you want, right? Do not hire him. Number 2, don't bail him out. This is this is going to get really personal as we think especially about dear friends and family members who have gotten themselves into trouble and they come to us for help and they want us To bail them out in some way. To, to, to get them out of the hole that they've dug themselves into. Listen to Proverbs chapter 16 verse 26. This is so insightful and I want, you have to think about it for a minute, okay? So I'm gonna read it and you think about it and tell me what it means. 1626. A worker's appetite works for him. For his hunger urges him on. You got it? What's that saying? If he, work, he eat. if he doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And that's the second reference there, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, lest you think this is an Old Testament mandate not That's absolutely right. If a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. And you say, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. But if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. Yes, that is in the Bible, the inspired and errant authoritative word of God. What's that saying about dealing with sluggards? Think with me. And then say something. You're responsible for your own and okay. Your own yeah, personal responsibility. Okay, I like that. There's a personal responsibility there. God, wants you to work. God does want you to work. Yeah. Yes? Yes? Okay. So we don't want to circumvent the process that scripture prescribes. Okay. You are all saying good biblical things. This is the guess what Pastor Keith is thinking game. But no, I really want you to interact with this verse, okay? Give it a shot. Uh, what I run into is when I run into a slugger and I said that "This is what you're going to need to do." They always bring up the children. Their going to suffer unless you step in. Okay. So kind of kind of putting the blame and guilt on. Okay, okay. You're missing it. Let me help you here. Look back at the verse. What is one of the God-given motivations for a person to work, according to this verse? Hunger. And what does it say? His hunger does what? Urges him on. What that means is God has designed the world in such a way that there are natural motivations. We might call them the natural consequences of not being a diligent worker, which means if you sleep through your alarm and you don't get to work on time and you lose your job, you're not going to get a paycheck that week, and you're not going to be able to provide for yourself. And that God, that's a good thing. God made it like that. And what this verse is saying is because God made it like that, because God makes natural consequences to be natural motivations, be careful when you find somebody who is experiencing those negative natural consequences. Be careful whether you're going to intervene or not to minimize or even get rid of those natural consequences. Because according to this verse, when you do that, it removes what? Their motivation. You see that? So as hard as this is, if it's somebody we love, a a family member, a friend, and we don't want to see them suffer, we need to heed. And I'm not not saying there isn't ever a time to help somebody or or bail somebody out. In fact, that's in the Bible too, that that, that a friend loves at all times and and things like that. There is a, a time to intervene and help. But the caution is, to not see negative consequences of irresponsibility as a good thing that God intends to motivate that person to do better next time. And we do not want to remove and circumvent those response, those consequences which are designed for their motivation. Do you see that? You with me? Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah we, we think of the word enablement, and uh, that, that comes from psychology, but it's not a bad word. Uh, because we're thinking, when I do things, thinking I'm helping the person, when I'm actually hurting the person, then I'm not really helping, am I? Okay. All right, you're with me now. Very good. Okay, number three. Stay away from him since he is a danger. Proverbs 18:9. And And you think particularly uh, parents about our children and the influence that their peers have on them. Chapter 18, verse 9. He also who is slack in his work, now look at this, is a brother to him who destroys. Now we can, t- we can take that a couple of different ways, but, but I think the, the, the one thing we can agree on is we need to view laziness and irresponsibility as a huge problem. You know, if, if I brought someone up here and said, well, this is a murderer, this is a bank robber. This is somebody who beats his wife. This is somebody who abuses children. This is somebody who, uh, you know, kills people and breaks things. You know, whatever it is. And, and we go, wow, what a bad person. That's, that's the person who destroys, right? The person who breaks things, kills people, hurts people, takes advantage of people. The person who destroys. And this is saying the person who is lazy is the brother of that man. Because we don't think of laziness and irresponsibility and a lack of diligence as any big deal because it's so commonplace. And Solomon is saying, no, no, you need to reset in your mind how you think about the severity of that situation. Okay, so we want to stay away from him and be careful because of the dangers there. Now notice, there are severe consequences for the future, in the future of the sluggard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question, and it's it's beyond the scope of our study. But let me give you a short answer. Um, one of the things we see in both the Old and New Testament is this: God cares about weak people, children, widows, the poor people that have been taken advantage of. God cares about those people, and one of the ways that God wants to do something about helping those people is working through people like us, the church. Okay, So there's definitely a time when if those children are genuinely suffering, it would be right and good in, in the spirit of what God thinks about those people to, to help them. Absolutely. And we can think about what Paul tells Timothy about caring for widows. We can think about James, you know, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to visit orphans and widows. We can think about verses like that, I think think the wisdom needed is that this parent, and this is often the case, right, the parent is using that as an excuse to not uh, bear his or her responsibilities, an excuse to be lazy. Um, You know, I don't think, especially looking at the nation of Israel and the theocracy, we can talk about, well, what should our government do, and, you know, what about welfare, and that's why this gets really, really big. But just using the nation of Israel as an example, God prescribed in the nation of Israel a a governmental care for people that genuinely were in need. Okay, And I'm not saying that that doesn't transfer, because we're not in the nation of Israel, we're in America. But what I'm saying is we can learn things by principle there. The wisdom is, how do you deal with the irresponsible parents? And I think that's a case-by-case thing where we put our heads together and we try to honor God, dealing with the need, but not, not promoting the parents' manipulation. Mr. Fessmeyer. Well, that's a great, that's a great additional question. And in, and in fact, um, what Americans think they need compared to most other countries is, is pretty pathetic. And in fact, that's one of the things we try to do when, when people come here for benevolence. We have a whole list of questions that we ask them. And, and one of the things we're trying to help them to discover, and they don't like us sometimes. I mean, just, I just tell you, I mean, we we see a lot of bad stuff, and, and we we love them because they need Jesus, and that's our goal. But but they they, they really are, are are thinking very differently than they ought to think. Um, and that is, you know, the, the the biblical prescription is, you know, food and drink, clothes, shelter. I mean, things like that are our needs. And, and my understanding of Scripture is that when we think about caring for people in need, those are the categories that we need to be thinking in. And I'm not saying there's never a time. and we, we helped somebody with gas money last week and right after the church service. okay? And we're not saying that we don't ever do beyond that, but it's the expectation of what my needs actually are that is so vastly larger than what the Bible frames it to be in that that's the problem. You know, people think you know my, my cell phone died last week, and you know I need you to recharge it. It's like, well, is that a need? I, I mean, we we may want to, we may want to choose to bless that person in Jesus' name, and I'm saying there's a time to do that. But in terms of needs, we need to help people to see what their needs are. And I think that goes back to your question, Rusty, that that sometimes people are living well beyond their means, and that's why they end up in positions where you know they can't pay a bill or something to that degree. So, yeah, these these are great questions, great comments, and um, but you, you see how all this connects back. To how we view money, how we view work, how we view, uh, laziness and these sorts of things. So, I'll tell you what, if you even wanna, wanna, you know, venture into this sort of thing, you will be a very radical person amongst your peers. I guarantee you. Now think about some of the, the challenges here. His life, according to the book of Proverbs, will be very difficult. Chapter 15, verse 19. The way of the lazy, listen to this, is as a hedge of Thorns. Um, how many of you, on a wonderful Texas summer day, you were out in the yard without your shoes on, and you ran into a field with those little Texas sandburrs? I remember, as a unsuspecting, innocent, recently transplanted Texan, discovering. A new level of pain in my feet that I had not yet experienced before. Now, burning sand on the beaches of Orange County, yes, I've, I've done that before. But but Texas sandburrs, there's nothing like. And then, and how do you get them out? It's like a minor surgical procedure to get those things out, right? isn't it? You know, you have to get your needle-nose pliers out or something, and you grab them, and then now it's stuck to your hand, and it's just not fun. And Solomon is saying. The path of the lazy is like a field full of sandbars. It's painful, it's hard, and it eventually leads to destruction. His life will be difficult. We've seen this before, we talked about this last time. He will be poor, right? Poor. Lacking what you need for basic necessities. Interestingly enough, Proverbs 12.24 says that under the theocracy of Israel, he could be sold into slavery for not working. It's like, well, you're not going to work on your own. We're going to make you work. And here's how we're going to make you work. And I say, "Ah!" I'm not saying we should do that today. I'm not saying that's American politics. How'd you like to see that on the next platform at the election, right? "Mm." Um, But I'll tell you what, there's a principle of wisdom here. And the principle of wisdom is that God wants able-bodied people to work yes sir yes right right yeah we're going to get to that because that that's a big problem but i'm glad you're on me I'm got you're you're with me there great awesome Okay. Look at chapter 10 verse 5. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I want you to see it again in this context. Chapter 10 verse 5. The lazy man, the sluggard will disgrace his family, 10:5. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. You know, we talked about this what you do or don't do in terms of responsibility doesn't just affect you. That's why that's why children suffer, right? That's why dependents suffer. That's why others around you suffer. Uh, and even you say, "Well, I'm on my own and I'm an adult now," and you know, and, and you're grieving your parents by how you're living. And he will spend his life wanting and wanting, but rarely getting. He will die because of his laziness. Chapter twenty-one. Verse 25 says this, The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, and his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. Such a contrast there. He wants, he wants, he wants, he wants, he never gets, and he will die because of his laziness. Now, now, Solomon means that literally. In this society... You would die if you didn't work because you couldn't eat. And if you don't eat, you die. And as Mike pointed out, part of the challenge today in rediscovering a biblical worldview is, is our government has created a welfare state. And again, don't, don't hear me saying that there's never a place for the government to help and, and we, we never should help people in need. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is it is exceedingly difficult as mike said to even minister to the poor the way the bible describes because of the way the playing field has been striped because of the welfare state today and that leads us to think about work and wealth and this will get into this kind of kind of dovetail on what mike was saying a minute ago let's talk now if that's how to deal with sluggards and that's the end of because that's not what we don't want to do that right we're trying to avoid that uh, we are trying to raise uh, boys and girls to be diligent, godly, wise workers, not sluggards. And and because of the way society is and because society resonates with our own intrinsic fallenness, if we take our hands off the wheel of parenting, guess which direction children go? Sluggard land. They just, right that way. Okay? That's how it works. So we need to be very, very careful in our parenting and training. And I, I think one of the greatest challenges of parenting today is instilling a biblical work ethic. Okay, So let's work together on that. Let's pray for each other. Let's work hard. Let's share ideas and pursue that. Now, let's talk about work and wealth. This is the put on, right? That we don't want to do the sluggard thing. We want to put on a wise worker. So what does God say about work? And let's think about first uh, the context of work and wealth. I'm going to break this down into, into little, little subsections here. The first one we'll talk about is work and wealth. Here's what the Bible says. Diligence leads to wealth. And negligence and laziness leads to poverty. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 4, it's up on the screen there. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 16:26. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. There's that motivation again, okay? I want to eat tonight, so I'm going to get up and go to work today. That's the motivation. Now, now just just stop for a second, okay? Fill fill your blank in and then look up for a minute. All right, I want to see your eyes. All right, what would it be like to live in a society like that? I mean, some of you may have lived in another country where that's normal, but can you imagine that? If I don't work today, I don't eat tonight. You're not thinking, because you have normal looks on your face. I mean, think about that. Think about what your life would be like. Think about how different your children would be. Think about how different your grandchildren would be. Think about how culture would be different. Be <laughs> would it be chaos? I think it would a lot, and... I just, it's You know, I, I can't get my brain there. I mean, I, I like, theoretically, but like, practically, you just go, I... We don't know anything like that, unless you've had some sort of third world, you know, foreign country experience, and maybe some of you have, that, that's really, really bizarre. And yet this was, this has been the normal protocol for most societies in all of history. It's, it's been a very recent development, like a few hundred years where this has not been the case. Okay? Now what that means is and here's why, and this goes back to Mike's comment, the context, of course, is a non welfare state with no grocery stores. That's why we can't get there. We can't imagine a non welfare state and a city with no grocery stores. Can you imagine that? Walmart and Kroger and H E B and Brookshires, boom, they're gone. You say that's okay, we got the toller mini mart. Toller mini mart, gone, right? <laughs> you know? Dollar General, gone and you run out of stuff in your pantry, what do you do? Okay, that's the society. You go out to your barn and you look at what you've been storing up all season, or you go out to your field and you pick some fruit, or whatever it is, right? And that's the challenge is this diligence leads to wealth, negligence leads to poverty. That doesn't work in our mind because we live in a welfare state with grocery stores. And the context is, if you work, you eat, and if you don't work, you starve, or at least are poor. Now, notice this, and we'll, we'll have a whole mini-series on the topic of money from the book of Proverbs, but let me just tease you with this. The Bible says that hard work that leads to wealth is a righteous pursuit. That's a righteous pursuit. It's, it's not a sin to say, I'm going to work hard and earn money. That's a good thing. Now, Your motive can be wrong in that. We talk about that. You know, what you do with the money can be wrong. We understand all that, right? But built on what we've seen in this book, built on the fear of the Lord, working hard, being diligent in work to gain wealth is a righteous pursuit, according to this book. And I think we need to hear that. I, I think there's the, the, the one extreme of, you know, getting rich is the ultimate end of life, and obviously we would reject that, but there, we can, we can go off the ditch on the other side of the road too, where we say, you know, all money is bad, and, 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 you know, Jesus was poor, and, you know, we, we say silly things that, that really don't reflect the biblical view. So like I said, we'll, we'll talk about that another time, but just for the moment, what we see in these verses is that hard week leads to wealth is a righteous pursuit. Now, notice this. Work and wealth. Don't just talk about it. Get to work. Proverbs chapter fourteen, verse twenty three. Thinking about work and wealth. What is what does the lazy man do? What does the sluggard do? He tells you all day what he's gonna do. Man, you know what? I'm gonna get that job. You know? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get that I'm gonna get that degree. You know, and and, and so, someday, someday I'm gonna get that promotion and then Everything's going to be fine. And they make these plans. And sometimes the plans are realistic. Sometimes they're grandiose. But it's just, they're all talk and no work. You want to say, close your mouth and go pick up that rake and get to work. Chapter 14, verse 23. In all labor there's profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So don't just talk about it. Get to work. And not only that, don't just do anything. Proverbs 12, 11, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues vain things lacks sense. Don't just work. Do something that will yield provision and wealth. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something radical here, okay? And you throw things at me if you don't like what you're saying, okay? I think that we need to talk to our young people about the types of careers and vocations that they need to be pursuing. Here's why. You know where I'm going, Susie, don't you? Okay. Um, I do premarital counseling. I've done probably more premarital counseling. Uh, man, there was a season I was like doing it, it seemed like every, every few months. This is what I consistently see young people coming out of college with thousands and thousands and thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for a piece of paper, for a degree that does nothing to help them to get gainful employment. So, throw things at me if you think I'm crazy. I think we should think about that. I think we should be having conversations with our young people in light of this verse that says, it is not commendable to just go to college and study anything. Go to college and study something that's going to be an investment in a life of honoring God in your work, which means do something that's going to earn a good paycheck. Men, boys, teenagers, something that's going to allow you to provide for your family and Keep and be honoring to God and being responsible with the other responsibilities of your life. If God gives you the mind to be able to go to school, God gives you the giftedness and means to do that, well, praise the Lord for that. Use that to do something that's going to allow you to honor God with the responsibilities He tells you. And don't go rack up a whole bunch of money that you're never going to be able to pay back given your career field choice and strap yourself for years and years and years of trying to pay that back. Do not do that. Now, now, now parents, grandparents, talk to me here. Am I totally crazy or is this a problem? No problem? This is a problem. So don't just work. Do something that will yield provision and wealth. Do, and here, here, here's a footnote to this. Do something that connects with the roles that God calls you to play as either a man or a woman. So let me talk to the teenage guys here. If you want to be married one day, you want to have a family one day, that God's going to call you to be the leader and provider and shepherd of your home. That's what he's going to call you to do. And now when you're in high school, you need to look at the Bible and learn what that role is and hear what it says about wealth and work and a career. And you need to be saying, okay, how has God gifted me in a way that I can maximize those gifts and skills for the glory of God and to fulfill my role? And, and, and let that shape whether you go into the military or whether you go to college, whether you go to grad school, whether you go to some vocational training or whether, you know, you're one of those entrepreneurial types. You just, you get out and, and you've already shown skills in the workplace and you don't need to go to school because God has gifted you well enough to do things well on your own. And whatever it is, but, but use that approach. And don't just say, you know, it'd be really cool to go do that. No, no, it's a biblical view, Uh, to all to the glory of God, which means I peer into the Word and I say, I, and here's what I, here's what I tell young men. Pick something to study in college that's gonna make it, follow me on this, it's gonna make it easy for you to fulfill your God-given role. In terms of the career that you have, in terms of the money that you make, in terms of the schedule that you're gonna have. That's how I look at it, okay? And again, uh, if you don't agree, that's fine. But that, that, that's what I see here. Proverbs 28, 19, He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. I think we have a generation of young people who are pursuing empty pursuits and racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans in the process. I'll get off that soapbox now, but I, I think that's a problem. Okay? All right. So... Um, that's a great place to stop. All right? Let's pray for wisdom in these things. Let's train our children, our grandchildren, come alongside other parents, other young people, and help us to pursue work for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your grace. And um, Lord, it's, e- it's easy to say this is the problem. Uh, it's hard to say what do we do about it. Lord, I pray that as we've been instructed and even convicted by these Proverbs today, that you would help us Whatever our role is, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a young person aspiring to honor God in life, uh, as a church member who works with children, uh, who befriends families, whatever, whatever our situation, would you help us to train and to model a biblical work ethic and to do our work for the glory of God and to help our young people especially to think about the gifts that God has given them and the roles that God will call them to play that they will do those things to the glory of God. And that may mean they're going to have to not be like their peers in a lot of ways. Praise the Lord for that. Give them courage. Give them wisdom beyond their years. Help them to pursue a career path, a vocational uh, aspiration that would bring you glory and would allow them to pursue their God-given roles uh, in a way that reflects their giftedness that you've given them. Lord, uh, give us wisdom in these things and give us boldness and clarity. Uh, in this day and age where what we have done to a work ethic is so, so far into the ditch. Lord, help us to be lights, and might those lead to gospel opportunities, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.